And we're live. Hello, Shar. Hello, Katie. I'm so excited to see you and hear your voice. Oh my gosh, so true. Uh, we oh. are recording via Zoom today uh, because you're in West Virginia and I'm in DC. Um, but yep. nothing would stop us. Nothing would stop us. Not even COVID. Not, Not even COVID. being far apart. Yeah. yeah. There were a few technical difficulties that occurred prior to recording, but yeah. that's okay. And no one I ever needs we... to know. <laughs> I know. I just ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like that you outed yourself. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> but I guess so welcome to Not So Silent Reading. Mm-hmm. This is episode number two, which is very exciting. Oh, um, I think number one went well. I think it's about number one. Yeah, I got some good feedback from like my mom, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah, uh, I had some good feedback from like some friends too, who like were listening to it. And I was like, thank you for being patient with our not understanding where the mic should go. <laughs> still, you know, trekking through it with us. <laughs> Progress, not perfection. <laughs> so true. The not so silent reading mantra. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, so on episode two, we're chatting about Educated by Tara Westover today. Uh, some background, um, Tara Westover wrote this memoir about her kind of journey from, uh, you know, the power of education and overcoming some of her own personal circumstances, growing up in like a survivalist Mormon community. Um, and as of yesterday, I looked this up because I felt like I should do more research than we did last, or than I did last time. Um, and as of yesterday, it has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 132 weeks. Whoa, that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Good for her. Yeah. That's really cool. Shouts to Tara. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after reading it, I understand the buzz, I guess. I, yeah. I get why it has such appeal. Okay, so what were your like first impressions? I mean, my first impressions were like, wow, this woman is like, I it was just such an awe. Like, I'm like, she's such a badass. Um, just her story, what she's overcome. And then like, even beyond her trying to get educated, but like, as she goes through higher education, I was just like, wow. I wish I was like, wow, I was really lazy, I guess, in college because she just busted her ass and like just really, I mean, toughed out so many obstacles to become, you know, a PhD and go to Cambridge. It was just really, and I guess those are all spoilers, but <laughs> it's a real story. So maybe not so much a spoiler as a, as a fiction book, but also, it's been on the New York Times list for 132 weeks. If you're listening yeah. to this podcast and you hadn't read it, joke's on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But um, yeah, that was kind of my first impressions. Also, just that she's a great writer. Like, it reads like a fiction book. It doesn't read like it's not overly um, pontificating or um, it just really reads like a story to me in my mind. Yeah. What about you? Hot take. Uh, I did not have the same first impression. <laughs> okay. I agree to disagree. Love it. Yeah. And not that. And not not that all of it was different, but I think that I, it was similar to things I had read before, um, because I'd read like Hillbilly Elegy before, and to me that kind of felt in the same vein, um, and it was really interesting, like I, I agreed that it was like, it read like a story, and it was interesting to kind of like 
hear a perspective that was unfamiliar to me. Like, I don't know that much about like survivalist Mormon, like ideology, like within a family. Um, I feel like a lot of like my introduction to that kind of idea was about like through like pop culture and like documentaries and like, you know, fictionalized versions of it through TV shows. So I did kind of like hearing about her upbringing, but I struggled a lot. And I think that this comes from my own personal pettiness, mm-hmm. um, where I was like, if you didn't know who Napoleon was, you don't get to go to Cambridge. <laughs> um, that's not, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not a thing. Um, and I think that that's like, one, not fair. And my own jealousness that I didn't get to go to Cambridge. But two, I think it kind of speaks to, I, I, I thought about it. Basically, like I knew that like, I was having an emotional reaction because I was being a punk. Um, But then I kind of thought a little bit more critically and I'm like, you know, realistically on her merits, did she get to go to Cambridge? Like to the honest answer is no, she had an advocate. And so I kind of like started to like weave that through her story a little bit more. And as much as it's about education, like for her kind of overcoming her circumstances, it's also about like advocacy and people believing in you enough to like, help you out and put you on a path and see if you can like grow in that. And so every opportunity she had, she took incredible advantage of, but some of those opportunities were given to her by other people and not something she totally like fought for, I think on her own. And kind of once I, once that clicked in my brain, I felt better about it. And I was like, that feels more authentic to me. Um, where it's like, you know, that professor at BYU, her older brother getting her to take the ACT, uh, her high school boyfriend for like helping her study and like learn, like, like learning how to learn and like all of those kinds of things. So I thought I liked that. I didn't like that better, but it just helped me kind of like take my own emotion out of it because like, you know, I, I went to GW, you went to Georgetown, both of us like went to like through higher education, you have a MBA, um, I have nothing. Uh, just kidding. I've That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> I'll call you out on that. <laughs> yeah, but no, not a graduate degree. But I think that like we both know how hard it is um, and how much some of higher education is not just about test results. It's about like different experiences, but also the culture shock of coming from like where we grew up in Los Angeles to like the East Coast and like I I don't know if you felt this way at Georgetown, but I had never been intellectually challenged the way I was um, at GW. So like, that was a scary thing. And I did a similar, not not the same as her, but like that first semester scared the bejesus out of me. And I had to study really hard to figure out how to make it. Um, So there's some of those things that I feel like were universal, but um, also there there was just a couple points where I was like, Um, and then that I think is a reflection more of me than of her as the author. (laughs) No, I think, I mean, it's an interesting take and I, I hadn't really thought about that, about the, the theme of like advocacy. And she did definitely have, I think some key people who helped her at at critical points, but I, I don't know what I really took away from it was just how much she persevered. I think there were a lot of steps along the way where she could have been, you know, she hit a lot of walls and could have been like, well, this is, as far as I'm going to go, or like, this is too hard, or I'm never going to overcome this and could have given up or turned away or just, you know, she could have just stopped it, you know, after BYU or she could have, you know, but I, I was really in admiration of her 
willingness to put in the work to see how far she could go with the opportunities that she was given. Um, and I, I don't know, I respected that kind of scrappiness or that, that willingness to work hard. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I guess I, I see it through a different lens, but um, it's an interesting point to, to see the, it through the lens of like having advocates that help you. But I think it also brings up a point of like no one really gets, I mean, you always kind of have help along the way in a certain sense. It may not be like a professor helping you get into a program, but it could be, you know, a family member like supporting you at home while you're trying to attempt something or a friend who's there for you or um, a coworker at work who helps you out. Like, I think there's always people like we're not, I guess no man is an island in a way. And there's always going to be social relationships that help you, I think is, is one of the messages in, in the book or in, or the themes. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, it could be seen as like, maybe she had access to opportunities that not everyone would have had, but in the other way, I think she definitely earned her way and worked. I mean, it seemed at least from the book that she worked really hard to, to yeah. get there and to stay there. Yeah. Um, and I do agree with that. I think that anytime an opportunity presented itself, she did the work to keep it or earn it or like, you know, make the most of it. Um, but I did just kind of start to notice that there was that element of people kind of guiding her way through it. Um, because conceptually, it's incredible. I, I don't know how you conceptualize not having any formal education at all and then going to BYU and then ending up at Cambridge. Like that to me is such a, a leap. Like there was a lot of steps along the way um, that I feel like, not that she brushed over, but like they were kind of woven into like some, uh, like buried by some other elements of her story. Um, but you're right, like the idea of like, you know, the advantages that a lot of other people have in pursuing higher education is a stable home environment to study and to like focus on. So, and which obviously she did not have, um, which was really like, her parents were super dynamic characters to read about. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, moving to like the family dynamics to me, I think that was one of the most, um, like the relationship with her father in particular, I thought was really interesting and with her mother and then with her older brother, Sean, I thought were, um, I mean, really interesting in how they developed or how she described them throughout the book. I think, you know, you don't really hear about Sean too much until um, a little bit into the book. And it kind of come like, I kind of was caught off guard in a way because she held, she holds that back a little bit at first. So you don't really learn about him and their relationship until a little bit um, into the book. And, um, you know, it, and it's a thread that stays a really, I mean, long time and how she grapples with it as she gets older and becomes more aware of the world outside of her home um, and then relates back to him is, is kind of a, I don't know, that was for me, I think one of the most um, both difficult to read parts of the book and also um, the most, uh, the ones that had the most lasting, I think, impact um, was how just obviously how many issues he had, but how how do you relate with a family member like I think that's such a universal theme of like having a family member that can be both so toxic and harmful but at the same time 
in a weird way, you also love them at the same time or have to deal with them. Um, and how do you, you know, deal with that tension or that, you know, kind of how can those two things coexist at once? It's very difficult and very painful, I think. And I think a lot of people have gone through that in, in different ways. Um, you know, maybe not in such a hor kind of horrific way that she endured, but um, yeah, I, I thought that was a really, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say I liked that piece because that seems wrong. That's like not the right word to use for that. But I just, I think she did a really good job of describing her relationship with her brother in that, in that sense. Yeah. There was like a lot of humanity in her writing when she talks mm -hmm. about her family. Like she didn't, nobody was wholly a villain or wholly a hero. It was very much like a much more nuanced and complicated. And I kind of get the feeling that she, part of me wonders that, you know, she was 29, I think when this book was published. And so like, part of me wonders what, she would have written if she'd written it when she was 39 or 49. Like, I wonder if the distance would have changed it, but at, thinking about how fresh all of this is in her life and in her memories when she wrote this really kind of makes me curious about like how much of this writing was her processing it. Um, and I think that maybe she wanted it to be about education, but really this book was a lot about family. Um, and it was compelling in that he was like, you know, there's obviously some like mental illness elements in her family. Um, she kind of diagnoses her dad with bipolar disorder. Sean clearly has some issues. Um, and a part of me wonders if she was as introspective with herself, like she doesn't really talk about, like she briefly mentions going to counseling at, through the school counseling program. But part of me wonders like, has she gotten professional help? help for this because I think that that could be really valuable um <laughs> and not not that she's like oh so, this is so traumatic you need professional help to sort yourself through this but um it so much of her whole identity was wrapped up in her family until she was like in until she was 17 like she had no other real interaction except with family members and then at 17 she like went off to college and like I think she still kind of clung to some family and clung, like, you know, she talked early on about her time at BYU where the farther she got away from her father, the more loyal she became to him. And like all of that kind of like, all those threads kind of came together really beautifully in her writing. But those were to me the most compelling things to read because it was like so relatable. Um, everybody has, I think, a family member who they could think about like what their challenges and navigating those relationships and, how do you keep it healthy and how do you protect yourself and also how do you take care of and show love to someone who needs it, but also at what cost and all of those things, I think is where her writing really shined for me. Yeah, I think um, I agree with you. I think those were some of the um, really interesting pieces and that kind of transition that everyone makes as a child becoming an adult and when you kind of start to realize your parents or your family is flawed, um, just like everyone else, I think, you know, that unveiling of your parents as humans and um, you can definitely see her go through that, not only through, through how she sees her parents, but like just the whole way of life that she grew up, um, she grew up in and how that starts to peel away as she learns more and, and goes through school. But 
Um, I think a lot of people relate to that, especially at the college, you know, when you go away to college, um, kind of realizing maybe certain, um, whether it's like practices or ways of life or values that your parents have, you don't have, or maybe you start to disagree about politics or religion or, um, you know, different views. Like I know I've um, generally agree with my parents on a lot of issues, but there are definitely some where we don't and kind of realizing where, oh, like, I guess we don't have everything in common. And, you know, I'm starting to have my own opinions that are different and standing up to your parents with those, I think is a very, um, yeah, it's a, it's a part of the becoming of adult process. And, um, you know, in her case, it's obviously something very stark where it's, she, kind of pulls away from the life that she grew up in um, and how that both in a way brings her closer to other people and to the world around her, but pulls her away from her family and that kind of contrast um, and how painful that can be, uh, but also exciting in a way, I guess. Um, I, I really enjoyed that that piece to it. Yeah. And, you know, even just like the idea of like how conservative her family was and like the the scene of her in like this junkyard um not able to like roll up her sleeves on a hot day because her shoulders would be showing and then like cut to her moving into BYU with a roommate who literally has juicy written on her butt cheeks I thought that was so funny um (laughs) but this kind of like how modesty and how like her parents would kind of talk about how women dress and how like even just her like aversion to like Charles and like those kinds of dynamics with like a, her only example of like what a woman should be was really like her mother. Like it didn't seem like her, either of her grandmothers were examples that her family thought what a woman should be. And so she didn't really have um, any of those kinds of examples. And so I think that she clung to these like ideas of like modesty that were introduced early on um, until she was like in an area where she was like, Oh, like, spaghetti strap girl also goes to church with me and like she's the one who's introducing me to the bishop and like trying to help me get into counseling and helping me study and fix my tooth and like all of like there was you know she talked at one point about um her faith in her family being one of action where like Mormons talk about preparing for the ends of the days but her dad actually does the preparing and they talk about modesty but her family actually lives it and I feel like she almost had the inverse happen where she was watching people act out these like kindnesses towards her and so she could kind of like start to reconcile that in her brain of oh maybe the rules that my family taught me are not the only rules for being a moral or just or good person um and so that kind of started to chip away I think at some of those things yeah yeah and I think I mean I feel like uh you know college um in a way helps you as you meet you meet and like live with people that are from different backgrounds and have different experiences you start to realize like oh, I I know for me that was a really transformational um you know kind of moment where I was lucky enough to meet some great friends who and then you see they come from different you know places or grew up in different ways. And you're like, oh, like that's different than how my family, like I thought it was so normal that my family did X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, oh, I realized that that's actually not normal. (laughs) And um, I think college, you know, that experience can be really great in that way. And obviously um, college is not the only way to, I think, get that experience for sure. But um, it's interesting how in a way her story is so different from a lot of um, young adults her age and in a way it's kind of so similar of like the like 
going to college and then you have roommates where you're, you know, maybe sometimes you make great friends and sometimes you're like, maybe this roommate's not for me. And, you know, um, and it's such a really, it's kind of relatable in that way. Um, but I, one of the things I wanted to bring up was I just, from a, I'm not a very, um, what's the word? I'm like not medically inclined or like enjoy super graphic medical things. And I was honestly blown away by just her tolerance of pain and the like physical, just a kind of literally beatings that she went through and, and some of the injuries she had, or not, not just her, but also other pe- people in her family. I mean, some of the descriptions of these, you know, accidents and her father getting burned so horrifically. I mean, I had really trouble kind of just reading through those passages where it was just um, so vividly described. And I don't know if it's just me, cause I have, I guess maybe I'm just not as comfortable like kind of reading about those um no, moments, it is but not just you <laughs> uh, i could name the car accident when her brother gets burned yeah there was a lot of very violent and difficult things that like were hard to read yeah um there were a lot and and it's so um we recently i i was driving recently and and kind of to refresh my memory because I, re- I read the book probably a couple weeks ago now, I was like, oh, let me just listen to the audiobook in the car. So just listen to the beginning, but um, was, you know, the part where her mom becomes a midwife and they go into detail about some of the home births. And like, I was just clenching my legs together for, <laughs> for dear life during those passages because they're quite um, intense. Yeah. Um, which leads me to another point, And now I feel like I'm rambling, but her in re in rereading or I guess re-listening to the audiobook, um, her mother actually, like now that I I went through it a second time, I'm like actually she kind of mirrored in a way what her mom did. Her mom like didn't have all this knowledge in in midwifery and and all these, um, you know, kind of herbal I guess medicate I don't know if medication is the right word or herbal red, remedies, um, but really like grew to expand her knowledge in that area you know after she had all these kids kind of later in life and it kind of reminded it kind of paralleled I think a little bit Tara's story of you know later than you would expect someone to learn about certain things they did it later in life and she was also able to educate her way or herself in in that way so even though I mean you know kind of stepping aside from whether or not you believe in mid midwifery or, or, you know, herbal or remedies as a, as a way, um, as an alternative to, to Western medicine, kind of, I'm not trying to go into that argument yet, but, uh, just the pure fact that her mom really, I think, gained financial independence in a way and gained kind of all this knowledge, um, and really formed her own person apart from her, like separate from her husband, I thought was really interesting. And it was something I picked up more on the second time around than I did the first. Did you, so, and I might've just like read this differently, but I read it that she had some experience with the kind of like herbal remedies and that's why the midwife was there to kind of like pick up those remedies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's also going to like start to like apprentice the midwife um, and then learn like the child uh, birth part of it. But I think that she knew some of like the herbal remedies before. Um, and so I don't know if that was like part of like her own family kind of like education where they talked about that, which, um, is like really interesting because like there is you know there's a, a lot of uh transition right now in this kind of like new age like healing crystals and 
you know, milk thistle and like all, like some of those like um, remedies that she described were ones where I was like, I think I read about that like in Self Magazine, <laughs> like, oh, it's <laughs> liver or whatever, like, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and then it goes off the rails a little bit with like the clicking and it felt very Scientology to me when she was like doing the clicking to like, um, what you call it, measuring, um, like after the accident. Uh, oh, was that after the, the dad's accident? No, before this is after her accident where she thought oh, she could okay. like heal herself with like the self-checking and the healing oh stuff. Mm-hmm. that to me like read a lot like the scientology like going clear type of um i, I haven't read that book yet but i it's on my list um about a five stars if you want to flip a page and be like what did i just read <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah it's on it's on my um on my list <laughs> so i think that that like that, those parts of like i think some of what I guess what I'm trying to say is some of her medical training seems to be rooted in actual like traditional um, me- like home remedies and like using the land to kind of like deal with some of these like um, common ailments and then it just goes far off the rails when they're doing all of these like burn remedies and um, when she's doing like the cooking and the checking and she oh I think you damaged your liver based on me snapping my fingers and asking the questions and like some of it just got a little bit wonky and then she kind of like course corrected into essential oils which is very on trend right now um so wait the essential oils and then she builds like this business out of it that the the husband you know obviously the whole family i guess is kind of benefiting from but that was super interesting to me too that then it becomes full circle in a way where not full circle but like definitely there's um you know, it's not like, oh, we're living off the land on our own anymore. It's like, we're definitely like, this is a business and milking this business. And like, I guess, hey, you found a product people want to buy, but um, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting how the the mother really becomes the kind of breadwinner, breadwinner and the and the really like kind of stabilizing force in, in the family unit. Yeah. Um, uh. Yeah, very. Like, I, I, her evolution was pretty fascinating to kind of watch, uh, because after the car accident and like how, how injured she seemed to be and how little actual care she seemed to get, I was like, this does not feel great. Like, <laughs> I don't like this at all. <laughs> um, and then it seemed like it just took her longer that she got, you know, she was able to kind of build back up some of her, um, intellectual or like a you know, like just her stamina to do things and ability to like be a person again. Um, and then to go from that to creating this huge empire um, seemed really, uh, that was impressive for sure. Yeah, she was, she was a really interesting, you know, person to in the book because also her relationship with her son, Sean, who was this very, I mean, quite violent and, and, really an aggressor in a lot of ways um, to not only Tara, but to other people. Uh, And her, I mean, maybe I'm kind of forgetting the end of the book, but it seems like there's a very vagueness as to how much the mom knew and and didn't really do anything about, which to me is a very, like I had a lot of trouble reading that part. Um, it, It was, yeah, that, that was also, I think another layer to, her mother's personality and and or just person that added another dimension that you honestly I, I quite wouldn't have expected 
you know, leading up to that. She's kind of a really strong character in other ways and, and just that kind of like gray area really of how she didn't really, I guess, um, maybe do as much as she could have in those situations. I almost feel like it's not that gray of an area. Like I think that she capitulated a lot to the men in her life. Um, yeah. I think that whatever the dynamic between the dad and her was, um, and I don't think it was necessarily like abusive in like the traditional sense, but there seemed to be some kind of like emotional abuse in some way in that the, the stark evolution that happened within their family from like kids being born in hospitals to homeschooling to, um, you know, the ranting and like the, the weaponry that they were hiding and like all of those things to me felt vaguely threatening. Um, but I also for sure am not someone who's at all comfortable around guns. So that's probably also part of it. Um, and so I think that there was some uh, history in this family as the dad got more and more erratic the mom kind of like went along with him and kind of soothed him. And I think she was trying to keep the peace in their own dynamic and like, you know, just kind of bought into a lot of his ideas, um, either as like a method of like self protection or, or because she did and she really might've, but I think that there was, you know, 15 to 20 years, it sounds like of her kind of going with like following his lead on those things. And this kind of, like, even just the comments about when she was wearing makeup and doing her hair, and if she didn't, she'd apologize. And maybe it kind of goes into this idea of, like, femininity and what a woman should be in this world. Um, and I think that she would have been deferential to her son, more so than protective of her daughter, um, possibly because of it, but maybe also because she felt like her son wasn't as capable of fending for himself after his own injuries. And so... Um, maybe she felt like he was the kid that needed her protection or I, I don't know, but there seemed to be something else almost at play because even her just telling Tara that she, you know, talk to dad, we're going to handle it. We're going to help him. And to find out later that that wasn't true. Like she never told the dad anything about Tara and Audrey's uh, complaints about Sean. And so, and Audrey did the same thing too, where she like took it back. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like, Tara, <laughs> possessed by the devil, made me do it. <laughs> um, and so I think that there's just some um, uh, self-preservation instinct at work in those women. Um, and really to Tara's credit, that's, I think, her navigating her family dynamic to me, I, maybe this is, again, my own bias. It was much more impressive than her educational um, adventure because I think that that family dynamic was a much more intense challenge. Um, yeah. I, I, um, I agree. I'm getting my charger because my computer is about to die. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I agree. And I, well, so while I get my charger at the same time, um, so the, the thing that I kept asking, that I'm asking myself now as we're talking and like, I would love your perspective on this is, I find it almost like there are a lot of feelings that I have about what I read and, and the story, but I find it hard almost to articulate some of them or to say some of them out loud because it's, it's someone's real life as opposed to if this were a fiction book, I think I would be more outspoken about my judgments of certain people yeah. and actions, but I find it 
harder because it's like, well, this is someone's real life and who am I to judge what I would do in those situations? Right. I, I don't know. What, what's your feeling on that? I'm, I'm really struggling with that a little bit. I, I'm afraid that I'm going to also sound callous on this, but I feel like she spent 132 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list because she put her story on paper to share it with people. One, because it is a compelling narrative. But two, I think that by, you know, this isn't, this isn't someone who we know personally who shared with us the intimacies of their family dynamic. This is someone who literally published it and sold it to us <laughs> for our consumption and for us to kind of think about critically. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, and no part of me is like, you know, blaming the victim or, you know, battered women syndrome. But I do think that there is room for real criticism, like, um, and like thoughtful criticism. And, you know, we're not, we're not being jerks about it, but I am, I would be curious about how you feel about it because I, for sure, on the one hand, I can see why she kept going back. But on the other hand, I am curious about why she went back to Buck's Peak as much as she did. Um, I myself would not have done that. I would have followed Tyler's lead and uh, skipped out a bit out of home for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I... I I see your point. I guess I just, I'm like, well, I don't want to, you know, hurt someone's feelings that that's their life. Like I would feel, um, I think we all have things where, you know, when it's family, you somehow have a different, when it's your own family, it, it's different than when it's someone else. Yeah. Well, then when you're talking about someone else, right. Or someone else's family, but no, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, just something I think is, yeah, that, that I've noticed in myself is, when it's a true story versus nonfiction or fiction, you know, how does that affect my thoughts about it? Yeah. Um, one, one thing I thought was interesting is I read, so I read this other book right after I finished educated called um, the girl with the louding voice, which <laughs> is, which is a fiction novel and is about a girl in um, Nigeria who also um, you know, kind of young teens. She lives in a small village. Is um, it's it's a great book. It, um, she gets married off to an older man, um, and it's also about her kind of fight to get educated and to have access to education um, without giving too much of the book away. Because I do recommend people go read that one. Um, and it was just I kind of had this moment afterwards where I was like, oh, this is two women, very different parts of the world kind of both living in similar times. I mean, one is a little bit more recent. The, the fiction book, Girl with the Louding Voice, takes place not too long ago. Um, I think Tara's um, about what our age is and um, grew up maybe a decade or so before the this novel takes place. But it was just interesting to me. It's like these, you can be totally across the world, different languages, different culture, you know, live in a patriarchal society and these women are still fighting for their right or their access, you know, their ability to access education. And it was just kind of, um, I don't know, it was kind of poignant to me. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool um, that I read these stories back to back. Very, very different stories, obviously. And obviously one's a memoir and one's, um, you know, a novel, but uh, I'm sure that there are examples of you know, true examples of that, um, of the story that it, the novel that I read 
Um, and it's just kind of crazy to me that it's 2020 and women are still struggling to fight to be able to even, you know, go to school. Um, I mean, it's, it's surprising and not surprising at the same time, I guess. That actually like is a curious, is some part of you, uh, like surprised that the Tara story happens in the United States? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think maybe not so much that it was in the U.S., but that it was so recent. I mean, it's it's a really more almost quasi-contemporary. Yeah. She is our age, by the way. She is. Yeah, she's our age. Older than us. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of the same time like I was going to school, she wasn't. And the time that I was going to college, she was also in college, you know, it's, um, so that I think is surprising, but I think also, I think there are a lot of, um, I think there's probably a lot of cases of people who are trying to get educated and go to school and can't for other reasons, like financial, I think is yeah. a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, the cost of education in the United States is very expensive, even if you're trying to go through the public system. Um, it's, and uh, I think there's a lot of kids trying to fight for their right to be educated in other ways. So that, um, and that remains a problem today for sure. So it's not just like your family circumstance. It really, I think is a societal issue we're facing um, that I hope we deal with in a good policy way because I, I think it's a big problem and it's the way that you educate the next generation and give people access to good jobs is is through affordable education. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, but it was just interesting to like read those stories and have kind of parallel themes at the same time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's, I actually wonder, so part of why I kind of was curious about that was I'm I read this in the last week or so and part of me thinks that part of why I was such a harsh judge of this book and like wasn't immediately like this is a great book everybody should read it stop what you're doing this is critical reading was I think because um in light of like the Black Lives Matter movement and this kind of like eye-opening uh we're having like as a nation about these systems that aren't working for us like one of the things that COVID-19 has made clear is that schools are responsible for a lot of things that are, that are not education. Like one of the things that public officials are trying to reckon with is if we close down schools because of a global health pandemic, then uh, there's kids who aren't gonna eat two meals a day that like they were getting at school. And so the social services and the role that we ask schools to play and like similarly the role that we ask police to play in handling mental health crises and um, all sorts of other things that are not just like safe policing are, are all of these foundational systems in our society are starting to show the cracks that they were not designed for everyone and they are not sustainable going forward unless we make some big like big picture shifting within them and so even just like the idea that like I should care that much about this girl from Idaho who ended up at Harvard. I just can't bring myself to. Um, and it's not, it's not a knock on her. And I know she's a real person. She did great. And she made the most out of this. But 
I just kept reading it and like wondering, like, you know, her brother did like the admirable thing and was like, you should take the ACTs, like you should get out of this environment. Like there's a whole world out there. But her, you know, the, the bishop at the church who was like, I'll pay out of my own check for like your dental issue. Like, would that have happened if like she wasn't like, obviously like a lovely, sweet, soft-spoken, not even soft-spoken, but whatever, like, you know, nice white girl, like, would those opportunities have been available elsewhere? Would, like, professors have advocated for her in the same way? Would they have believed in her potential in the same way? It's really what I kept coming back to, um, because when we talk about, like, inner-city kids who make it, there's not all of these support networks in the big schools, and, like, even inner-city is not the right term for that, but when we talk about poor students who make it to institutions, not that many seem to get the same level of support that she got. And maybe that's because she was in a smaller religious school and there was a bigger sense of community, who knows, but um, she's the exception and not the rule. And that is interesting reading, but it feeds into this idea that in America, you can pick yourself up by your bootstrap, but we don't really, we're not really seeing that to be the truth for everybody right now. So it's harder for me to buy into this idea um, and maybe like one of the things I thought about was like, would I, would, would this story have resonated differently with me if she hadn't ended up at Cambridge and Harvard, if she had just gotten a good education at BYU and then gone on to Utah State or Idaho State for a master's in history or something along those lines, would that have impacted anything differently? Is it because she went to these like name brand, like world renowned institutions that that is what makes the story of merit? Like I, all of those questions were just kind of like bubbling in my brain when I finished um, and probably led to one, my saltiness, but two, like part of like me being critical of like why I was feeling the way I was. Um, and not that I should be going to Cambridge or Harvard. <laughs> no, thank you. That's not, the, <laughs> that's not the move for me. Um, but I just am curious about like what other students like don't get those kinds of opportunities who would flourish in them. Yeah, I, I think those are very valid points. And I definitely, I wonder if, you know, we talked about the book being on the New York Times bestseller list for 130 plus weeks. Like if you had read this book 130 weeks ago mm -hmm. um, versus today in light of the Black Lives Matter, you know, protests, particularly over the last few months um, and, and kind of movement and, and awareness that's going on right now. Um, how that changes that lens um, at all? Even COVID nineteen changes the lens. Or COVID, yeah, and COVID nineteen. That's that's a great point as well. I mean, I I totally like I I one hundred percent agree, and I think that there are you know you could very much ask those questions of if this had been a girl who was you know black from maybe the, an inner city school, would the same opportunities or same advocacy have presented itself? for for someone coming from that background um and i think those are interesting questions like i i don't discount the validity of those questions and and um that uh you know um that 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 this story would not necessarily be true for everyone coming from different backgrounds but leaving like just to put that aside for a second I really found this, the merits of this story just in and of itself. You know, this this woman was born into this life and into this circumstance and what she made out of it or what, you know, the journey that she took from it. To me, those just as a story on its own, I thought was compelling and interesting. And I think it's worth 
hearing or reading about just because of of that in and of itself if that makes sense um but yes taking in a, a larger um context of course i think there are certainly you know a lot of other stories out there that maybe don't get highlighted in the same way this one did or maybe other kids that aren't getting the same opportunities that she did um for various reasons um but I still found this quite um, quite interesting. I also th think that it was an interesting take on um, kind of people who live in more rural areas versus more city or, or urban areas. Um, she actually wrote, it, I was just kind of Googling her in preparation for this and she wrote a piece, I guess it was maybe end of December, 2019 that um, I read, which is kind of about this rural city divide. And it's quite, I think she she really has an interesting perspective. And I did not read Hillbilly Elegy, so I, I can't compare to, to that book. But I thought she made some really interesting points about how, you know, the current economy and post-2008 recession has really been beneficial for the cities, but really a lot of rural parts of America have are still living the 08 you know recession and have not come out of it and are falling further and further behind and that there's just more and more disparate um, you know differences between the two and that if you actually look at rural versus city how they vote it is pretty pretty clearly along party lines um, and I thought that that was you know she she had some interesting points about that um, and she also recognized in herself like Yes, I may have come from from rural, um, you know, Idaho, but now I live, you know, she lives in New York, and she's like, now I'm I'm one of the urbanites, and I can't call, my, you know, at a certain point, even if you're from somewhere, you kind of lose that being in touch with that way of life, and you become the new, you know, you become something slightly different. Um, and her recognition that she's now more of an urbanite and um, I don't know. It's an interesting piece. I, f I think it was in the Atlantic, I want to say, but... Um, Not a good long-form journalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that that's kind of like where I land on her, on this whole book is, did I like it? I'm not sure yet. Um, <laughs> was I challenged by it? Like, did, I, did it make me think differently? Did it make me think critically? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that that is in, a <laughs> in it and of itself is enough of a value to me. So like, I'm glad I read it, um, but I think that that was, that tilt in perspective was valuable. Uh, I think that as, as a East Coast liberal elite in Washington, D.C., <laughs> it's probably helpful to kind of think about um, what rural Idaho or even like urban Utah is like is very different than the life that I live, and I just always remind myself that a lot of like beliefs that people have and values that people hold are based on their lived experience. Um, and so even if you disagree with it, it's based on some element of reality for somebody else. And if you don't bother to understand it, you can't like properly empathize or figure out what the common ground is to move forward. And so I do think that there's like good value in this, in that sense, um, where it's like better understanding of what, what daily life is like for you know, <laughs> a family that's living on the mountain in a junkyard, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I was, maybe I'm more favorable than I think you fall on the book 
I, I agree on the critic, what, how it made me think and the critical thinking that I got out of it. I would say definitely rated high for me for that. Um, in terms of just the enjoyableness of the book, like I also read it pretty quickly. I, I just think she's also a very good writer. She's very vivid in her description. And um, I think she does a lot of showing rather than telling you of like how she feels and what to think. Um, you kind of have to decide for yourself. Uh, so I, I, I enjoyed it. I would say read it over the audiobook. I wasn't as much a fan of it in an audio version. Maybe it was because I already had read it, but I, I think the, I liked the literary component of it um, more so. So I guess that's kind of where we fall. So we've differed a little bit more, I think, than we did the last time on The Vanishing Half, which is good. Yeah. It's like good to have um, some, uh, you know, differences in, in views. I remember actually after our first podcast, after my mom listened to it, she said, she was like, this was great, but I, I really want to hear an episode where you and Katie don't agree. As well <gasps> so here we go. <laughs> Little did you know, you'd have to wait just one episode. Yeah, just one episode. So, you know, um, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> you done. Yeah. Asking you shall receive, Isabel. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Um, uh, she also, by the way, just texted us, I think, as we were recording that she finished Vanishing Half. <laughs> oh, re oh, really? Oh, I don't have my phone, but there we go. Yeah, she, okay. um, perfect timing. Yeah. Now she has a new one. She can, she can read. <laughs> yeah, it also um, reminded me, sorry to jump back to this book, but one last thought I wanted to end on was, have you read The Glass Castle? This kind of reminded oh, me of that yeah. um, a lot. It, that's all, That to me was, I, it's been a while since I read it, probably... Yeah decent amount of years but um I really really liked that um that book uh we read Hillbilly Elegy in one of my book clubs and somebody who was my friend Cecilia who was at the book club was like this book is trash if you want to have this story read Glass Castle <laughs> <laughs> yeah Glass Castle was a book that really made an impact on me so yeah. I I recommend it yeah um yeah perfect okay final thoughts anything else no, I think, I think that's, uh, that's it. Um, okay. but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also glad to finally know what it's all about. Cause I've seen it on so many, like, yeah. you know, featured bookshelves and like at bookstores and I'm like, what is this story? So now I finally feel like I know what happened and yeah. I'm on the in. <laughs> I'm on the, I'm in the know. <laughs> people had described it to me in like weird and incorrect ways and now that I've read it I'm like oh they didn't know they wouldn't know what they were talking about and I had just been like oh Sam's cool before <laughs> yeah oh man um what are you reading right now um so right now I'm reading and I have to get the title right because I keep mucking it up but it's <laughs> this the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle oh yeah which is good it's a mystery book it kind of starts out different it's going in a different direction than I thought it was so I'm a little bit like I don't know what my thoughts are on it yet um I also in the past couple of weeks have re read a couple of Tana French's novels um which is a, she's a great mystery writer out of um she writes about a lot of murders in Ireland and Dublin um so I read a well couple of her books. Murders, Ireland and Dublin. What? <laughs> I said, well known for their murders. The Irish. Yeah. Well, she, she has, they're all based there. Um, and uh, I don't know, they're just really good. She's just also a very good writer, but like 
there's always so much suspense. So I read a few of her books um, recently as well, and they were great. Um, yeah. What about you? What are you reading? Uh, I am reading a YA book about vampires. So yeah, I'm crashing the game. It's not Twilight <laughs> or in the Twilight uh, series, but it is like a, a very fun fantasy world where like- What's it called? Um, it, the series is called uh, Blood and Ash is the, is the first book. And this is the second book in the series. Um, his title is called uh, A Kingdom of Flesh and Fire. Oh, so good. What a great so good. title for a vampire book. <laughs> what? Who's the author? Uh, oh, let me see if I've got it here. Um, let's see. I'm looking on my Kindle right now. Uh, Jennifer Armentrout. Honestly, cute name, Armin Trout. Cool. Uh, yeah, and so I'm really enjoying that because it is a little bit of like whimsical brain candy in a time where I need a little whimsical brain candy. Some, yeah, yeah, you need that from time to time. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's been nice to kind of like take a step back for something lighter and a little bit silly, um, but also like YA. So it's like, you know, PG-13, uh, <laughs> which is cute. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's been good. Cool. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll end there. Yeah. Um, Wait, we haven't picked our book for the next oh, yeah. uh, podcast. And you had sent me three suggestions and I was noodling them and hadn't made a decision and hadn't texted you back. But since you're already reading The Seven Deaths of Eileen Fisher, uh, what's it called? Evelyn Hardcastle. It's a hard title to remember. <laughs> I've butchered it many times. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah we can. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. That takes a, a left turn. Uh, sign me up. Yeah, it's like a. I mean, I feel like a, a mystery. Like it's kind of a fun, different read. You know, different than what I've read recently. So I haven't read a mystery in a hot minute either. So I would be on board for that. Um, yeah. Perfect. And then, is there anything gross and medical in it, or should we be in the all clear? Not that I've not that I've encountered yet. But again, I'm I'm still at the beginning, so. If there is, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I'll lay that blame at your feet next time we talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so far, it's it's more like, um, well, actually, I'll save it. I'll save okay. it till the next podcast. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. So. Perfect. So that's our decision. Next podcast, we are talking about the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, yeah. and I don't remember the author's name. Shoot. I'm the worst. I, it's on my Kindle, which I don't have next to me, but. You know what? There cannot be that many t- books with that title or titles. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, just Google that title. <laughs> <It's a mouthful>. uh, <laughs> um, excellent. Well, I hope you uh, have a great time in West Virginia. Thank you. And I hope we get to have coffee, ideally a pumpkin cream cold brew and go for a stroll uh, soon. Yes. Same Z's. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Well, have a great day, everybody who was listening. Thanks so much for listening. uh, And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.